The Department of Veterans Affairs Electronic Health Records Project has critics in Congress. Top Republicans on the House VA Committee have introduced bills that would either postpone future installations or simply end the multi-billion dollar contract with Oracle Corporation and its subsidiary Cerner. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the chairman of the House VA Committee, Illinois Republican Mike Bost. Those incidents have occurred because the system itself either dropped at possible appointment that was vitally important for them to receive and or the wrong drugs and or delayed their care, which then caused them not to be able to be cured because of the delay of care. So it's one issue like this after another that we've noticed. Now, remember, those are incidents where you had fatalities, but you also got to realize that the system itself has caused all kinds of trouble with our veterans trying to receive care, confusion for appointments, wrong drugs being sent, no drugs being sent after the prescription is out there, and not counting the fact of what it does to the employees. Our main focus is definitely our veterans and making sure that they receive the health care that they deserve on time the way they need to. There's too many flaws in the system by itself, but when you throw uh, an electronic health record system in there that has failed over and over and over again, then the danger to our veterans is out there. The frustration of our employees and our doctors are out there. And the fact that this has just been kind of kicked around, and this has been five years of doing this, there needs to be an accountability to Cerner Oracle to make sure that there is some goal set so that we know that we can get through this. Now, you know, and I know that there are systems out there that are electronic systems and mistakes happen with the systems, okay? But when you look at the old system in comparison to this one, I think the number is 10 times more instances than the existing system. Right. And we'll get into the way forward here in a moment. Just in terms of outstanding questions that you have for the VA in terms of not just these fatal incidents, but this larger population of incidents that have compromised patient care. What are some of those questions that you're still waiting to hear back from the VA on? What are you looking to learn more about in this instance? Well, the most important thing is is to make sure that we're delivering health care to our veterans right and correctly, that we can track exactly what's going on, that when a doctor gives an order that needs to be done, or an exam that needs to be done, or a prescription that needs to be done, that they're hitting correctly, and that you don't have multiple shutdowns. The loss of work days and or the ability to keep records clear, there's a whole list of things that need to be done because we're talking about people's lives and their health records. So the answers that we're getting or trying to get is what is the long-term goal? What are the matrix that are put in place to make sure that it comes to an operating system that not everybody is afraid that they're going to lose important information and or lose, of all things, our veterans' lives because an electronic system isn't working correctly? The questions we're asking are, when do you meet the mark and not constantly have us hearing, oh, boy, well, that, that broke down again, but we're going to work on that, or that broke down again, or we're going to work on that. And, and, and it is every time we turn up to a go live, it, it is every facility that we started this in. Right. And to that point, go lives are supposed to resume in uh, June of this year, I believe. At this point, it's kind of the question in everyone's mind whether those go lives in Saginaw, Michigan, and onwards will proceed as scheduled. What would you need to see from the EHR and from the VA, you know, upcoming deadline here to feel confident that that go live is the right call and the right decision? 
the problems that have existed, that they would show how they've cured those problems in the existing five facilities so that the people that operate those systems feel comfortable, that they feel comfortable, that they, as the medical experts, know and understand that the quality of care will be delivered to our veterans. It will be delivered promptly. It'll be delivered safely, and the records will be kept so we know and understand that they're receiving the best possible health care. Because if you can't track it through their records, then it doesn't get done, and that's how we lose lives. I know that subcommittee chairman Matt Rosedale has uh, been adamant that at this point, of course, the VA is a tale of two EHRs. We're looking at Oracle Surter and the legacy EHR Vista. Subcommittee chairman Rosendale in recent hearings has been pretty clear that if things don't proceed well with the Oracle Cerner EHR, that Vista is a reliable system for, for EHR to keep using for the indefinite future here. What is your position on Vista? If Cerner does not meet and set goals and then meet those goals, then my suggestion is is we go back to Vista. Vista was working. Were there are things that we would like to see to move forward? Sure. But let's work with them and try to figure this out. Because remember, this has been through two administrations now that they're trying to turn up first, as I said, the Cerner, then bought out by Oracle. And Oracle made us all kinds of promises. They sat in my office and told me how great it was going to be. And just so you know, Congressman Rosendale was listening to that as well. And uh, they made these great promises. Those great promises haven't come to fruition. This is, look. People were receiving their health care, and they met all those things that I just listed off. They were safe. Their records were kept. They knew they were going to get their prescriptions. They knew they were going to get their appointments. They knew all of this. The problem is, is that there's a whole bunch of people say, well, we need to move forward, and that's so that we can move into the future. And I understand that. But if you're moving into the future just to be moving into the future and you're endangering lives to do it, that's not a very wise way to go. So if we need to go back to the old system and then rethink this and have the VA rethink this, then that's what we need to do. We keep rolling forward with every place that they've turned it up. And what's really wild is, remember, it's only five places that we've turned up and all five have been terrible. I've been in Congress nine years. This is over the last five years. This has been the biggest problem every day, every day. Even the people come up to me and mention the name Cerner, and they don't even understand how it's, it, it, it's like a cuss word to me. Wow. Yeah, and then I guess the other element of this, too, is just in terms of VA employees feeling comfortable with the system, it seems like the metrics that we are looking at is that they are consistently not comfortable with the Oracle Cerner EHR. It requires them to spend too much time at their computer and not the time doing their job, which is taking care of the patient. And I think sometimes with Cerner, what we've got is you've got a computer company that wants to do something in the medical field, and maybe it'd be better if you had medical people seeing what they can do to make the computer work for them instead of making the medical field work for Cerner. And that's the problem that ends up happening in each one of these facilities. The morale at these locations goes into the gutter just as quick as you turn it up. You know, that's one thing is one of the checks the VA does on the quality of the VA is communicating with their own employees on how well they feel about the job that they're doing. And when you look at these five facilities, Cerner's put in place, and you know, what's really wild is early on when we would go in, the administration there, I think, was kind of told, tell them it's okay, tell them we'll get through it. The last couple of places we've gone to, the, the administration just goes, this is junk. It, it, it is trash. It doesn't work. It's causing us trouble. And so it, it's not only the frontline worker, not only the doctor, 
It's the people that are over them trying to keep a good operation going of their medical facility. And when that is also what we do in the VA, as big as a medical system as it is, that you check and say, okay, what's the quality of the facility? Well, a lot of the quality of the facility is judged based on what the employees feel is happening. So this, this ruins that. Republican Congressman Mike Bost, chairman of the House VA Committee, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. 
So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sasulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving 
with the correct conclusion. He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.